Hello, my rebels. A change of pace today. China rolled out its latest aircraft carrier called the Fujian. We'll have some footage. It's a tremendous vessel, 80,000 tons. For contrast, it's almost as big as the biggest U.S. aircraft carriers. We'll take a look at it, look at the pictures, look at the video, compare it to the U.S. Uh, craft, and we'll talk to our friend Gordon Chang about it. Uh, it's, it's one of those shows where you absolutely have to see the video version of it. I mean, I want to show you what this thing looks like. Um, I know you can't get that on the podcast, but you can get the video version of this podcast by going to rebelnewsplus.com and clicking subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get my daily show. You get four weekly shows that we put together. So 36 shows a week, sorry, pardon me, a month, uh, all for eight bucks. And you know what? The eight bucks goes to keep our lights on here because we don't take any of that money from Trudeau. So A, it's half the price of Netflix. B, you get great content. And C, you help us stay independent. That's rebelnewsplus.com. Okay, here's today's podcast. Tonight, China floats its third aircraft carrier. Who do you think it's designed to attack? It's June 17th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Hey, it's Pride Month out there. I don't know if you know. Here's a tweet by a four-star admiral in the United States. When the first openly gay press secretary and the first openly trans uh, HHSASH and four-star general meet at the White House during Pride, proud to be a part of an administration where everyone can see themselves reflected in leadership, we've come so far. Here's to shattering more ceilings. Well, the... Rainbow fireworks and streamers were very evident in China's military today, too, including what they call the People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLA Navy. Here they are today rolling out their third aircraft carrier called the Fujian. This is in Chinese, but pride is pride. Look at the rainbow fireworks. <laughs> So both militaries are proud in their own way. 
By the way, this new Chinese aircraft carrier has electromagnetic catapults. They're called that. That's what gets the jets going very fast so they can take off on such a short runway. So most aircraft carriers floating today, if they have a catapult, they're, they're steam-powered catapults. Just here's a video. looks like it's about 20 years old explaining what those are. Just watch for a couple minutes if you don't know what I'm talking about. Well, they use a steam cannon that actually fires the plane off the end of the aircraft carrier, and that really is sort of taking the idea into its final and most modern form. It gives us the capability to accelerate aircraft weighing 55,000 pounds from zero to 165 knots over a 300-foot distance in less than two and a half seconds. The principles explored by Tisibius save military lives every day. This is the front of the catapult. It's called the battery position. This is where the aircraft gets secured to the shuttle, which is attached to the rest of the catapult. Within the launching engine are power cylinders that run the full length of the catapult. Within the cylinders are pistons that are linked to the shuttle, which are next to the aircraft. When you're ready to fire the catapult, it's a programmed opening of the launch valve, which admits steam into the cylinders, pushes the pistons forward, when it gets to the end of the power stroke, the aircraft is permitted to continue flying. So that's the old technology. The new technology is electromagnetic catapults. Only the newest American aircraft carrier has them. Oh, and so does this new Chinese aircraft carrier. You might have noticed the electromagnetic catapults were covered by a sort of building with Chinese lettering on it. I, I'm not sure why. I'm guessing so it's to stop American spy satellites from seeing uh, what they look like. Here's, here's a drone image flying over the Fujian, and you can see they're covered from this uh, view also. some more pictures of the Fujian. Again, you can see their catapults covered. Uh, that is a gorgeous vessel. It's enormous. They say it's 80,000 tons. The largest American aircraft carriers are about 100,000 tons. Um, th this is an interesting picture. Uh, sorry, this is a video montage, pardon me, that shows what they call the, uh, the island. That's the control tower of the ship. Very interesting view. And here's an image of what the ship will look like uh, when it's fully deployed and has its fighter aircraft aboard it. I have a couple thoughts on this. This is the first homegrown aircraft carrier made in China. The idea that they have to buy old ones from Russia or another decrepit navy is long gone. China's first aircraft carrier is called the Liaoning, um, which you can see here. And this is a propaganda video, but still... Aircraft area is smaller. It has a ramp, not a catapult system. It's more a let's figure out how to run the most complex military system in the world kind of thing. I don't know if you could even call it operational.
hears uh, the Liaoning is China got it. I don't know if you know, but they bought it from Russia and they literally towed it to China and they've had it for 10 years, puttering, training, testing. They say it's ready for action, but it's clear they're, they're way, way past that old hulk, even though they do use it for shock and awe videos and I think some training. But let me ask you an obvious question. What is an aircraft carrier for? Well, it's for projecting force far away from your homeland. That's what America has its aircraft carriers for. For winning the Second World War. For conducting wars from Vietnam to Iraq. It's a floating air base, of course. It's how the Brits managed to free the Falkland Islands. Uh, the U.S. has air bases around the world, but you can literally put an aircraft carrier air base anywhere, like between two things, like the Falklands and Argentina, or, I don't know, say between China and Taiwan. Why would China need an aircraft carrier, though? Why would they need what is sometimes called a blue water navy, as in far out in the ocean open, I mean, to patrol their rivers and lakes, to patrol their shoreline, uh, to be a coast guard, to defend China against attack, wherever that might come from in their mind. That's one thing, but that's not what an aircraft carrier is for. You wouldn't need an aircraft carrier, for example, to defend, say, Beijing. It's in the middle of the country. You would just have normal air bases on the ground. An aircraft carrier is to put your air base right in your enemy's turf. You know, once upon a time, Canada had aircraft carriers. We actually had three of them. And now we have none, of course. Uh, Russia has one. France has one. Uh, the United Kingdom has uh, two. Here's the Queen Elizabeth. It doesn't have catapults, but its jets can take off on a short one runway, and they can actually land vertically. Uh, India has one. America is the boss, of course, with 11 of them. But now China has three, if you include the Liaoning. And it's fair to point out that the new one, the Fujian, has a couple more years of sea trials before it's going to be ready to fight. They've got to test out the systems, and they've got to train the crews, etc. It's still two years out, analysts say, but they're not done, are they? But back to my point, why, why, why are they doing this? Well, to project force around the world, outside of their zone. Fujian, by the way, is the name of the Chinese province right across from Taiwan. Maybe it's a premonition of one of its missions to attack and conquer Taiwan. In the past, the U.S. Navy would just sail a mighty aircraft carrier in there and tamp down any Chinese ambitions. The carrier would probably stop any Chinese adventure and in a terrible way. It would even be a tripwire to a larger war. But... What if China had their own aircraft carrier in there? And what if, I'm not suggesting this, I'm just wondering out loud, what if one day that Chinese aircraft carrier is better than an American aircraft carrier? China's catching up quickly to American technology in all regards, often by just plain old industrial espionage. So, I don't know, many Chinese missile systems, aircraft systems just look like the American counterpart, obviously stolen blueprints, especially their aircraft. But in some ways, China is ahead of America. Drone technology, for example, AI, artificial intelligence, that's the next kind of war, isn't it? In 10 years, if China had two or three more aircraft carriers and a new generation of fighter jets, I don't know, maybe a thousand naval drones with the purpose of sinking American capital ships, who would you bet on if war broke out over Taiwan? But why be so modest? I mean, China's expanding its sphere of influence throughout the Pacific. Have you ever heard of 
the little country of Kiribati? It's almost like an answer to a Jeopardy question. It's one of the world's smallest countries, barely 100,000 people there. It's right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, south of Hawaii. Really far away from China, isn't it, though? Well, look at this story. China has been visiting it, wooing it. This news article is titled, Kiribati Runway Project in Focus as China's Wang Yi Tours Region. You bet. That was an American runway. Um, there were battles there in the Second World War. Well, now China wants it, and you doubt they'll get it. China has major colonization projects throughout Africa in particular. Chinese workers, Chinese property, Chinese infrastructure, Chinese mines, Chinese dams, Chinese ports, Chinese police patrolling these, Chinese profits. China has interests around the world. It wants a navy to protect those interests and project force there. It already has the largest navy in the world numerically. Now it's working to grow its qualitative advantage. And look, even if the Fujian aircraft carrier isn't quite ready to tackle the USS Gerald Ford, that's the new U.S. aircraft carrier class that's is just entering service. Um, these are images of the USS Gerald Ford undergoing sea trials, practicing, practicing. But look, even if the Fujian can't quite take on the Yanks, you can bet they can take on, I don't know, any African country that doesn't like to be recolonized and is pushing back on China or any little island in the Pacific or even tackle Korea or Japan in a significant way. I wouldn't bet against those countries just yet, but China is their rival now, bigger than them, richer than them, and Soon enough, stronger than them. I laugh at the demonization of Russia in wired society, the virtue signaling, the empty gestures, not because I support Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I don't, but because it's so obviously ineffective, all this virtue signaling. Russia is selling more oil than ever at a higher price than ever. The ruble is more valuable than when the war started. It was supposed to be destroyed. Western countries refused to actually sanction Russian oil and gas because they need it so badly. It's all BS virtue signaling. Russian soldiers have died, and I don't think it's going how Putin planned, but they haven't really been stopped, have they? And I don't think they will be until they decide to stop. And if that's what Russia can do, Russia, well, what could China do with literally 10 times the population and 10 times the GDP? I mean, for all the photo ops and everyone putting a Ukraine flag as their Facebook photo, we haven't actually put true sanctions on Russia because that would hurt the West and just drive Russia into the arms of China and India and others, and they would get the oil and the West wouldn't. Now imagine China, effectively the world's factory for everything, everything important, from high-tech to medicine to rare earth minerals. If you can't take Russia out of your economy, imagine trying to take China out of your economy. I can't even think of a single thing that I buy from Russia, but I can't think of a single thing that I don't buy. Uh, from China. My point is, do you think we could win a war against China? Economically? I don't know. And how about militarily? Do you not want to think about it? It's tough to think about. All right, well, they, they seem to be thinking about it a lot on their side, even if we don't like to think about it. Trump started to take on the challenge of China. He put big tariffs and import barriers on them. He challenged them rhetorically. He put them on notice. He tried to reshore American industries, but it didn't really get going. And under Joe Biden, all of those trade battles have been abandoned, surrendered. Hunter Biden, the son, is on the take from both Russia and China. Who knows what that means? But the world has seen Biden's reaction to threats to Afghanistan, to Ukraine, 
Lots of talk, not a lot of action. China's taking his measure. I'm worried about this new aircraft carrier in China. I mean, I'm not worried today, but maybe in two years, for sure in five years, when it's likely joined by a sister ship. And when China has decided that it can take out Taiwan faster than the U.S. can send help. And that the U.S. really wouldn't have the moral stamina to cut itself off from China. It's goods and services, TikTok, Apple computers, everything made there. Oh, well, I don't know. That Chinese aircraft carrier had rainbow fireworks. <laughs> so what? Look at the U.S. Navy's Twitter page today. It changed its emblem to the pride colors. I mean, look, if you're going to lose a war, you might as well look fabulous while you do so. Stay with us with, for more on this. so distracted, aren't we, by everything going on in our own country. And in terms of foreign affairs, Ukraine has taken up 95% of the oxygen in the room. Well, while we're distracted, as they say, two argue and a third grabs the hat. That's an old Yiddish proverb. And who deployed their newest aircraft carrier today but the People's Liberation Army Navy of China. And although it is two years away from being operational, it is a mighty aircraft carrier, 80,000 tons, almost as big as the newest American class. It has that electromagnetic catapult, which is the latest technology that even, say, the UK aircraft carriers don't have. What does this mean? What are the Chinese plans? How will they use this against America, against Taiwan, to project force around the world? Joining us now to talk about that is the man who probably knows better than most. His name is Gordon G. Chang. I follow him on Twitter. I know you do, too. And he joins us now via Skype. Gordon, this is a mighty warship. They're not playing around anymore. This, uh, I'm not sure if they're really an aircraft carrier force yet, but they certainly intend to be. They've been working on this project for a decade. I think that this is a major milestone. What do you think? Oh, it certainly is. The uh, Fujian, and that's the name of the new carrier, which, by the way, is the province across from Taiwan. And I think that's significant. Um, the Fujian uh, looks like uh, the Ford class. It's about the same size. Um, some people speculate it's a little bit bigger than what they announced, so it could be in the 100,000-ton class. And as you point out, it's got some pretty uh, modern things, uh, features to it, including that electromagnetic catapult system, which is now appearing on the Ford class and which you know we have yet to get to work well. So um, you know, China is catching up. The uh, question is, where do they get that? They probably stole it, um, and this is up to the shame of the U.S. Navy for not protecting its technology. But clearly Beijing is going to use this for nefarious purposes because it does not believe that it is bound by the rules of the international system. It takes a while for an aircraft carrier to work. I mean, imagine how complex it is running a capital ship like that is complex enough than running the air wing on it and having them integrate that. The U.S., has decades, really almost a century of experience in that. Uh, I think China has to learn that from scratch, but I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, they've been practicing on their previous aircraft carriers, the one they bought from Russia called the Liaoning, if I'm pronouncing that right, pardon me if I'm not, and then the Shandong. So I think they're taking the long view. They know they've got to learn these things and practice. 
But even if this thing isn't ready for a couple more years, I, I think it's obvious they're willing to make the long-term multi-billion dollar investments to get there. Like, this is as serious as the space program in terms of a high-cost long-term investment. You can't just snap your fingers and get an aircraft carrier. you got to plan that 10, 20 years out. It looks like China's willing to do that. Well, it certainly is. And, and you point out the most important thing about this news, and that is um, the trajectory of China's Navy. Um, they're building capital ships, submarines, and others at a very fast clip. Their Navy is bigger than ours, if you count bottoms. We're still... The United States still has more tonnage, but nonetheless, this is getting to a point where the Chinese um, have a formidable force. And when it comes to, for instance, a war over Taiwan, China will have more assets in the region than we can actually muster. So this shows that China has that determination to take Taiwan by force and also to move against other neighbors, especially Japan and the Philippines. You know, I, I don't know if China would try to invade Japan or Korea. I find that hard to fathom. But it, I certainly they have expressly stated they wish to reabsorb Taiwan. It's much smaller uh, uh, population wise. It's just across the straits. Uh, I think if you plunked a couple of Chinese aircraft carriers between mainland China and Taiwan, uh, I think the Chinese amphibious. I mean, I, I don't want to get too technical. I don't want to pretend that I have a military background, but it just strikes me as sort of obvious. If you deployed the bulk of the Chinese Navy between mainland China and Taiwan, China would pretty much have its way. Uh, and the, and how, I mean, I'm just terrified that the qualitative and quantitative advantages are being lost. Yeah, well, certainly um, uh, they're being lost. And by the way, for an invasion of Taiwan to be successful, China's got to establish a, a blockade. That blockade to be successful has got to include sovereign Japanese territory, oh. uh, specifically Yonagumi, an island which is actually south of Taipei, 58 nautical miles from the main island of Taiwan. On a clear day, actually, you can see the Taiwan mountains from Yonagumi. Huh. And so there's that issue. But also there's the... Uh, islets in the East China Sea that the Japanese call the Senkakus, right. the Chinese call the Daoyus. The Chinese have a very weak claim to them, um, but they've made it very clear that they're going to take those from Japan. So this carrier, plus the other ones, plus the rest of its navy, would be very helpful in uh, taking the Senkakus, the Daoyus, from Japan. You know, I was saying earlier, uh, I look at the West's reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I was checking, and Russia's GDP is almost exactly one-tenth that of China's, and their population is almost exactly one-tenth that of China's. And Russia has oil and natural gas and other minerals, it's true. But most of the stuff we love to buy doesn't come from Russia. I can't think of anything I buy that comes from Russia, whereas I, it's very few things that we don't buy from China, whether it's medicine or high-tech, anything high-tech. And so I look at how difficult it's been to punish Russia economically. The ruble is strong. They, they are not having trouble selling their oil at record prices. I mean, yes, they have had military losses, but I think that the West, has, especially Europe, has been unwilling to pay an economic price for disentangling with Russia. I think of that, and I think that is one-tenth of China's inter integration with the world, 
And forget about the military hardware. I don't know if the West has the stomach, the moral conviction to get into a showdown with China. I think the West would blink in a second. I'm really afraid that you're right, because as we've seen, um, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia have been um, less than inspiring. They've been um, they've been somewhat effective, but China uh, China has been able to help Russia to evade them. And the Russians have been very good at being able to sell oil and gas around the world um, to a number of countries, including the United States and the European Union. Um, so, um, you know, China looks at this and there's two big lessons that China takes away from all of this. You know, there's a lot of wishful thinking and, you know, people say, oh, you know, China's seen the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people and worry that Taiwanese would be uh, heroic. Well, yes, the Taiwanese would be heroic. But that's not the lesson that I think Beijing takes away. They take away two of them. One of them is about the um, sanctions not being effective. And I think you're right. They believe that no one's going to impose sanctions on China. And the second lesson goes to your first point, And that is that uh, the United States, the European Union, 27 nations, and Great Britain, those 29 nations had an economy that it was 25.1 times larger than Russia's in 2021. And yet we failed to deter that invasion, which most people thought was unthinkable. The Chinese look at that and say, well, if the much stronger West couldn't stop Russia, how are they going to stop us? Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, there's been a breakdown in deterrence. Now, I've had people say China will get old before it gets rich, a reference to their aging demographics and their low um, fertility rate, partly because of the historic one-child policy. Well, they seem to be getting rich pretty fast. Um, are there any structural weaknesses? Uh, is there, you know, sometimes when people get some wealth, they start to demand more rights and, and freedoms, whereas if they're absolutely in abject poverty, they're just thinking, how do I eat today? Is there anything in China? Is there, a, is there an ethnic identity movement? Is there... Uh, is there some political, I mean, there was the Falun Gong movement more than a decade ago that was snuffed out. Is there any countervailing force that Xi Jinping is worried about other than just regular political rivalry? Is there something internally in China that perhaps makes them not as strong as they appear on the outside? That's a great question, because the answer is yes. Um, we know that the Chinese regime these days is extremely casualty averse. We know this because China launched a surprise attack against India on uh, June uh, 2020. They did not announce their casualties until the following February when they said they had four. Um, but both Russian and Indian sources um, publicly have said that China uh, undercounted its casualties by a factor of 11. That shows you the regime in Beijing is very worried about um, military misadventure abroad because they realize the Chinese people, for various reasons right now, are just in no mood for um, aggression against anybody. Hmm. And, and that, I think, is largely because they've got an economy right now that is, um, if it's not collapsing, it's certainly plunging, it's contracting. It's a property market that is falling down um, with no bottom in sight. And that's important because property, uh, basically new apartments, are like currency in China, store of value. So you have a lot of problems going on. And the one that you mentioned, demography. Um, China's demography is projected to fall faster than any other 
country in history in the absence of war or disease. Hmm. So Chinese leaders see this and they believe that uh, they've got some real problems, but it also means they may believe they've got a closing window of opportunity. In other words, act fast or don't act at all. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, Vladimir Putin, he may be unpopular uh, outside his country, but there, there's some indication that within Russia, uh, the war has caused people to rally to him or out of patriotism or may, who knows, maybe they've bought their propaganda. But um, I don't think it's bringing him down uh, internally. I remember a few decades ago, there was a book in Japan, if I recall, called The Japan That Can Say No. And it was sort of, you know, let's stop being second banana of the United States. Let's have some pride. Part of it was sort of ethnic pride, national pride. How I don't know if it's possible to read Chinese public opinion. I don't know if that thing exists in the same way we think of it in the West. But an average person in China, do they love America? Or do they want to go to America? Or do they hate America as a new imperialist force, a bully? Do they have an affection for the place where Hollywood and Disney and sports comes from? What do they think of the average American? Well, there's 1.41 billion Chinese, according to the last census. So there's probably 1.41 billion mm -hmm. answers to that. Um, I think that, first of all, you can't measure public opinion on sensitive issues in China. So we really don't know. Um, so all of this is anecdotal. But I think most Chinese uh, admire the U.S. Um, the problems with the U.S. Um, have been magnified by Communist Party and central government propaganda. So there's been a diminution in support. Um, and of course, there always is national pride. But um, I think the Chinese people aren't so focused on um, the outside world these days as they're focused on their own government, because the problems in China, COVID-19 lockdowns, economy, all the rest of it really have um, focused them on the issues that affect them on an immediate basis. Hmm. Well, I tell you, it sure was a wake up call to see that mighty aircraft carry. It looks like it could be an American ship. It's so mighty and it's got that flat top, uh, not that ski jump top like uh, some of the smaller aircraft carriers. Gordon, right. it's great to catch up with you folks. I say again, you really have to follow Gordon on Twitter. If you care about China and China-America relations and, and the whole region, go to Gordon G. Chang on Twitter. It's a great follow. It's nice to see you, my friend. Thanks for jamming us in your busy schedule. Thank you so much, Ezra. It was a blast. Right on. There you have it, Gordon Chang. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your feedback, Dave Reed says, perhaps we should start a petition for Tamara after her ward. Perhaps a statue or plaque in Ottawa. No one represented freedom-loving Canadians more than her. You're talking about Tamara Litch. I had the pleasure of being at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, JCCF, uh, gala dinner last night here in Toronto. John Carpe, their boss, was there. A lot of their lawyers were there. I, I went out of support. I really like those guys. As you know, I've been supporting them even since back in my time at Sun News Network. And uh, the Democracy Fund does some great civil liberties lawyering, which obviously I totally support. I, that's my favorite group. But the JCCF is like the granddaddy of it all. They do so much work. And as I said to John last night, if the JCCF were not there, it would be a wasteland of civil liberties in this country. I mean, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has done nothing over the last two years. The JCCF has done so much. So Tamara 
was their guest of honor and received their Freedom Award. So it was really fun. I got a bit of a photo. So, you know, I don't take a lot of selfies with people. I mean, people take them with me, and that's great. But I, I don't go up to people and say, hey, give me a selfie very often at all. But I did that with Tamara because I was sort of proud, and I wanted to, a picture with her. Uh, here's a letter referring to William Diaz Bertiome's street interview with Pablo Rodriguez, the censor. One hour escape. I saw that. Great work, William. It was like watching a 1970s show when journalism used to be journalists running after people who were supposed to have answers. You know what? That's a great point. And I mean, I, I've been around politics for really 30 years. I even worked on Parliament Hill for a couple of years for Preston Manning way back in the day. And it was absolutely standard practice for journalists to chase people, especially up and down Parliament Hill, and to make sort of a dramatic scene about it. And the CBC was a master of it. And, you know, that's, that was sort of their job. But no journalists do that anymore because they're obedient and they've been domesticated because they, they're on the payroll. I mean, you can take a wolf and domesticate him. I mean, uh, chihuahuas and little poodles did descend from mighty wolves. And it was because they were corrupted in a friendly way. I mean, the species of a dog is Canis familiaris, family dog. And um, you can do that to a dog. You can turn into a cuddly little puppy. You can do that with journalists, too. Speaking of dogs, Dr. Dirty Dog 995 says, Liberals refusing to answer questions on Bill C-11 shows you exactly what this bill is meant to do. You're exactly right. And like I say, uh, a lot of journalists used to run and ask questions. I remember when Stephen Harper had a bump in the road and Nigel Wright, his chief of staff, um, he used to get up and go jogging at like 4 a.m. A CTV reporter got up that early and sort of jogged alongside him asking questions. That was great journalism on their part. It's unthinkable that journalists would do that to Trudeau or his cabinet ministers these days because they're all on the tape. That's our show for today and for this week. Until Monday, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. Astute viewers of Rebel News might recall our video last week exposing how Brampton Mayor Sneaky Patrick Brown had a secret campaign office running out of the city of Vaughan. What's more, he was allegedly using senior City of Brampton staff to help sell Conservative Party of Canada memberships. That's against the rules, of course, unless those staffers took an unpaid leave of absence, and none of the Brampton employees we reached out to would provide proof of this. In any event, on the day Lincoln J. and I visited the secret Sneaky Patrick campaign HQ, who should show up but the sneaky one himself? As soon as he saw us, he scrammed like a frightened weasel. Naturally, we followed Brown down the highway. We wanted to query him. Where, oh, where was Patty running to, though? City Hall? His home? Nope. Turns out that his final destination was a police station? <laughs> Check out this surreal video evidence. Patrick Brown drove straight to the Brampton police headquarters. Okay, go, get out. Okay, then. Okay, you get out right now. And go, go, please, please. Mr. Brown! Mr. Brown, why are uh, senior City of Brampton staff working out of your secret campaign headquarters in Vaughan? 
Mr. Brown, is that on the taxpayer dollar? Have they taken a leave of absence? Mr. Brown, why are city of uh, Brampton employees working at your campaign headquarters in Vaughan? Is this on the taxpayer dollar? Mr. Brown. Close, close right. Oh, okay then. All right then. Okay. Why would you want to conduct a traffic stop on you? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, why is that, sir? Let's go back outside. Okay, sure. Why would you want to conduct a traffic stop on this? You came in, going a little faster in our parking lot. We want to see what's going on. Oh, is that right? I'm just uh, following uh, Patrick Brown's vehicle, officer. Okay. He has a secret campaign headquarters. No, that's fine. We're going to that point. We okay. know who he is. Okay. We're going to find out who you are. Oh, my name is David Menzies. I'm a uh, okay. reporter. Your driver's license for me. Absolutely. Do you know the mean girls Sorry? Sorry, sir? Hey. What's your problem? He's my cameraman, officer. Awesome. Hang out over here. Sorry, my name is Lincoln J. Perfect. I have no idea what he said on his phone call to Brampton Police. Well, folks, that investigation regarding criminal harassment began that very evening, if you can believe it. A detective called Lincoln and I sometime after 10 p.m. Yes, with all the crime occurring in Peel region, ranging from violent carjackings to homicide, apparently the number one hot-button issue in Peel that night was Lincoln and I asking Patrick Brown impolite questions. In any event, we deferred the detective's queries to our lawyer. And get this, that investigation wrapped up just a few days later. Here's the letter our lawyer, David Elmala, received recently. Hello, Mr. Elmala. I am writing to follow up on our previous conversation regarding your clients, Mr. Menzies and Mr. J. We have completed our investigation and determined that there are no grounds to charge your clients with any criminal or provincial offenses. In our opinion, your clients exercise their freedom of the press charter right in a lawful manner. Should you have any further questions, please feel free to reach out. Kind regards. Now, folks, that's my kind of detective, someone who respects freedom of the press. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, this is yet another embarrassing defeat for the sneaky one, yet another victory for Rebel News when it comes to exposing Patrick Brown. But really, the cops had no other choice to deep-six this investigation. If Lincoln and yours truly were criminals hell-bent on doing Brown harm, why in the world would we follow him into a police station? <laughs> Me thinks that would be a really bad move if we were a couple of actual gangbangers. Which makes me wonder, what the hell did Patrick Brown say when he phoned 911, or did he call one of his cop buddies? Because if he claimed he was being followed by strangers looking to harm him, well, his own driver kindly provided us with evidence that he knew exactly who we were. Check it out. Sorry? Sorry, sir? Oh, how sad. Here's a hunch. Brown saw our video, heard the incriminating words of his own driver, 
and maybe even begged the cops to call off the investigation. Who knows? And perhaps we'll never know. Wonder if he's looking for a new driver right now, one that subscribes to the old saying, loose lips sink ships. But you know, folks, it's getting a little tired watching Brown use the Peel Regional Police as though they were his private security guards. Brown used the police to shut down the practice of journalism some two years ago when the cops arrested me for trespassing. <laughs> yeah, I was standing on the parking lot of a taxpayer-funded community center hoping to ask questions, but, oh, King Brown, he's not to be disturbed when he's playing hockey. Check it out. Are you ready to leave now? I am not, sir. I am here to- I'm gonna help you off the property, let's go. Well, he's under arrest. He's not under arrest. I well, swear to you that we will go through such a disclosure procedure and we will have every one of the officers there and we will answer the question, who made the order to arrest a journalist doing public interest journalism on a public sidewalk. I'm not under arrest, so you can't touch me. Are you wanting to leave then? I am not. What they have given to us is an opening to give that rotten city hall an enema. There is a very important constitutional principle at stake. Look at this, four cars and all you cops pulled off the shooting file. You must be proud. You're not listening to me. You're not listening to me. Not two, not three, but four police cars came to arrest a journalist? Oh, and by the way, we beat that bogus charge in court too. Despite his lying, despite his misuse of city staff, and despite his manipulation of the police, Patrick Brown can't catch a break. Indeed, I almost feel sorry for this rascally weasel. Because really, when it comes to Patrick Brown, I think his character is best summed up by three words. What a loser. For Rebel News, I'm David the Menzoid Menzies.